the broadcast is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before them. Podcasts are now battlefields. It's the broadcast. I'm Vince Mancini. I'm joined, as always. You know him. You love him. He's the irregular regular, Mr. Matt Lee. Rocking around my Christmas D at the Christmas sucky fuck. <laughs> What's up, guys? Okay. I'm sorry. Right. I know this is a very sure. serious podcast. I mean, We're going to talk history. Sure. We're going to yeah, talk most serious. You know, uh, like uh, uh, cinema, important mm-hmm. cinema. Um, you know, uh, uh, possibly Oscar award-winning cinema. You decide. But no, I had to open up with a little bit of Christmas cheer and something to make sure that we never get sponsors. Yeah, that's uh, that's you, you killed two birds with one stone. I love to do that. You know what I did? I did a, a tactical square, mm-hmm. and I said, "Come at me, the come British. at me horses." Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That, you try to bring that horse trash up in here. Yeah, yeah. Swat it out. Swat exactly. It, just bayonet it out of the oh, way. Yeah. Um, you guys might have guessed that we're going to talk Napoleon oh, today, yeah. and yes. Uh, yes, we, we have a very special guest. Mm-hmm. Everett Rummage from the Age of Napoleon podcast. Hey. hey, how's it going, guys? It's going good. How are you doing, Everett? I'm quite well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm looking forward to this. I'm I'm so glad that you decided to come on to this podcast, a very serious podcast about both cinema and history, uh, and sometimes about changing uh, classic Christmas songs into sex stuff. That's I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Hell yeah. Hell Do you think yeah. uh, Napoleon ever did that? Like if he was writing like a letter, there would be, you know, like, like a parody a, song. Like in the a, middle of yeah, it? there'd be a parody song in the middle. of. Yeah, you had to you had to do that with pen and parchment back, back in the day. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is um, a, a good uh, line. A guy who knew him very well, worked with him, uh, wrote about when they were on the on the run from Russia, just the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it looked like they might get killed. And apparently Napoleon kind of got the giggles and started making fun of him and talking trash. And it's a pretty fun, you don't often see that that side of Napoleon, but he was capable of the, of a joke. I'm not sure he ever did a, a parody Christmas song, though. Yeah, yeah. But probably like something in French. I feel like the French were like the first like people to change the lyrics to known songs in order to make them cool. But yeah. I base that on nothing. It was probably really easy because it's like so many more things rhyme. Yeah, that's yeah, everything true. rhymes in French. It's kind of cheating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a very rhymy language. Very beautiful. You know, it's uh, it sounds hot. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like one of those languages. They say it's like a romantic, you know, type of language. And when I hear it, um, I just immediately get bricked up. But <laughs> let's talk. I about... find it to be a gross language. It kind of kind of sounds like someone's like. It's very like. Tonguey. There's a lot of. It sounds yeah. Like that's why it's hot. Of, it's like a numb tongue kind of language, a little bit. Hmm. Yeah. Everett, what are your thoughts on <laughs> <laughs> what French sounds like? I always thought French was very throaty. Mm, Lots yeah. of uh. Yeah. Hopefully that, that came through on the mic. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. No, it came through. It's is again hot. Hot to me. It feels like someone's licking my ear when I hear French. Like yeah, they're, yeah. Like they're sticking the ear like in the tongue stick- in the ear. Yeah, right. And for you, that's a turnoff. For me, yeah, that's literally my kink. Mm. Um, but yeah. Uh, so you do a podcast about Napoleon, and I got to say, it is 
quite possibly the podcast about Napoleon because I've like looked for other podcasts about Napoleon and found them all to be incredibly bad or boring. <laughs> uh, whereas yours are actually entertaining. How how did you do that? Well, um, I actually not a I'm not an academic. I'm mm. not a. Uh, I've always been fascinated by history since I was a kid. I mean, it's been kind of my hobby, mm. um, but I was never like a history guy. You know, I never, I've never, uh, you know, done reenactments. I've never yeah. gone to conventions. I'm not, um, I'm always trying to keep an eye on the public, trying to keep an eye on like people who don't already know all this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah and I think yeah. that's just a yeah, different, it's, uh, you know, some, it feels, seems like keep... it's very easy to get into those like uh, internal, like, uh, it's sort of like intra-left uh, battles over, you know, uh, debates over like doctrinal, really like deep doctrinal stuff. And it's like, dude, no, nobody else cares, but like right people. Right, and, exactly. Uh, like who, who, who are you talking to? And it's usually they're just talking to like other academics. Someone else or, that they hate. Right, or someone they hate. Uh, yeah. yeah, and they're mostly just trying to like, you know, prove to the world that, they're right and the other one's wrong but the world doesn't care whereas like there's a lot of pedantry and mm -hmm. um kind of i don't know it's one of those things it always reminds me of like uh when you turn on espn and you see the guys yelling at each other about football right and it's like do these guys even yeah. actually like sports or do they just yeah. like yelling at each other <laughs> yeah. and i kind of feel the same way with sometimes with um like discussions of history you get online where it's like people seem to just enjoy the sort of a uh, uh pedantry aspect of it more than they enjoy the topic yeah. Yeah. For me, like I always enjoy, I always sort of uh, actively tried to write about movies, uh, like the way people would write about sports. And it seemed to me like a better fit in some ways. Cause like to me, arguing about movies makes a little more sense. Whereas like it, these guys that get into arguing about sports, it's like, Hey, that's why there's like a score at the end. Like it's very <laughs> <laughs> like the buzzer sounds. And then we know what, how like, you get very clear answers at the end of sports. It's kind of why it's cool, but right. uh, I don't necessarily, the, the thing where you have to have a take about literally everything that happened in a sporting match. I'm like, I don't really get it. And then the, the meta conversations about who's overrated, who's yeah. underrated, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's I mean it's endless. It's yeah. the same, you know. Any any subculture is going to have people who are like that, and yeah. you know, history because it is because there is so much material out there. Um, I think particularly lends itself to those kind of you know, inside baseball arguments, which yeah. you know, I, I sometimes try to kind of introduce the listeners to that a little bit. But fundamentally, you know, people want the story and they want to know what happened and they want right. to know they want the excitement. And, and so that's what I try to bring. So uh, that leads me to my next question. Um, overrated, underrated. <laughs> Tallyrand? <laughs> <laughs> I think Tallyrand underrated. What about you guys? I love Talleyrand. Uh, there's, there's an awesome biography of him, if anyone's interested, by a guy named Duff Cooper. Great mm. name. Mm, and um, he was just, you know, Talleyrand is one of the most fun characters of this era because he just stuck he's around. One of these people, he stuck around. I mean, just like it was a joke by the end how, yeah. you know, classic weasel, right? Yeah. Classic weasel. But then also kind of was he was he a mm. man who understood that kind of you have to be a weasel if you want to get anything good done? True. Or so true. was he just a piece of shit who was only in it for himself? 
And that's what's cool about him is you never totally know. I yeah. go back and forth constantly. I've been reading about him for seven years now and I still, you know, I'll read something about him and be like, huh, okay, maybe he was, maybe he was actually not a total piece of shit. And then you I mean, a couple pages later, you're like, never mind, I was right the first time. <laughs> Even the name sounds pretty weaselly. Like that's like, that's the name that you would have if you're a weasel. Tally it actually, Rand. Talleyrand was like a word in English in the 19th mm. century. Like you'd call someone a Talleyrand. You know, just you know, as a shorthand to say he was kind of a you know Weasley evil genius. It does sound like a, a a British slur more so than an actual French name, which is kind of crazy. Like sounds like British penis slang. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. me stuck me Talleyrand in me too. He slung me Talleyrand. All oh, these birds want to gobble me Talleyrand. You know, <laughs> he did love to fuck. He I did. Mean, I mean, a lot of these guys did. The movie gets into that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, this was, was like an ins insanely fucky time, right? Like, that's oh, one of the yes. things that stuck out reading Classic. about it, where it was like, yeah, like he, like Napoleon would bang dudes' wives and they would just be like, ah, oh, you know, fair play to that guy. And like, yeah. vice versa, like everybody was just like banging each other. And, uh, and it was just kind of understood as the thing you did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people think yeah. of like the, people think of like the past as being really prudish. Right. Um, but yeah. that's because our recent past is the Victorian era, which was right. super prudish, in part because of as a response to this era when, I mean, you know, super no, low necklines and like translucent dresses on women and yeah. everybody just fucking everybody. Yeah. Um, I loved that scene, uh, the, the party scene in the movie. And people are like groping each other on the dance floor to classical music while they're just hammered drunk. And I loved that because that's probably what it would have been like, despite the, you know, fancy sounding classical music and costumes. Yeah. But like they got really wild. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, yeah, that was uh, that that scene also stuck out at me. So that was set. So in the movie, they called it like a, a survivor's ball, I think. Um, yeah. I've those heard, didn't I've, really happen, by the way. But it's no, a very that's common a, that's a myth. myth and, yeah. Oh. Oh, it's a good story, though. Yeah. Oh, that's why that's why Scott included it. I mean, that's it's it's irresistible as uh, you know, like, like symbolism of of that time because that was a time when people, you know, post uh, post the terror, people were like cutting loose, yeah. um, and there so was... it does sort of feel true, even though it's not. They were stoked they didn't get their heads chopped off. I could see they them were. doing that. <laughs> you know, so I, I felt like right. the, uh, oh, yeah. Let's talk about this movie uh that we all saw i saw it uh vince i actually i didn't go to a theater um oh you i i torrented it oh, and it was wow. someone filming inside of a theater okay uh, so <laughs> i i i got two did hours did you have a letter from the government did you pirate it or did you just privateer it like was it uh it was, it was privateered <laughs> it was privateered <laughs> yeah it's fine it's totally legal yeah. um no but uh i it did only show me two hours and 20 minutes of the movie so uh well you only missed 18 minutes of it i, I well, spoiler I, alert he does lose at the end yeah. yeah well no i mean i i saw him lose at waterloo and then uh he is uh at the uh saint uh helena is that where he yeah yep. yeah and uh he's like talking to these two girls uh about like on about the capitals and then it just ends Mm. Oh well, that's only a couple seconds before the end of the movie. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right, sick. You he missed dies the, at the end of that conversation. You missed the most like <laughs> contentious part, which was like the closing, uh, like the epilogue text for some reason. Like, uh, oh, there's epilogue text. Yeah, it just like says. Well, it says what uh, Napoleon's last words 
were supposedly, uh, which okay. was uh, France, I'm a cock. Fr- France, the army, Josephine, or something like that. Uh, mm. And then, uh, like and a then, word cloud. His last words were a word cloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the way I read it, he was just sort of uh, babbling, and that was like one of the those were like the three things they could actually make out. Right, he had like a tropical disease, and he was just like uh, France, cockery, Josephine. (laughs) (laughs) I I read uh, Napoleon: A Life, which is a great book about Napoleon, and it really gets into the letters between him and Josephine. And there's multiple ones called Napoleon: A Life, though, aren't there? Is there? I, uh, I there's the one that I read was was I think pretty recent. I don't. I'm, I'm not really sure, but uh, yeah. Um, and it was it focused a lot on the letters uh, between both of them, and and really the kind of sad emo nature of Napoleon, which uh, which I appreciated. They they made a good portion of this movie about. You know. So all right. So well, first of all. Uh, and let me just ask what you th- ever. Sorry, well, let me just ask like what you were thinking when you heard that there was going to be the movie. Were you like uh, excited about it? Uh, I don't know. Like scared, scared. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of like there. It's always contentious between when an English person does it and when a French person does it. And Ridley mm-hmm. Scott, obviously English dude. Um, did you have any thoughts like going into it? Well, um, I mean. On a certain level, I'm excited whenever anyone is talking about Napoleon for any reason. Uh, I, I, you know, I Years think this is a great story, an important story. And it's good when people are talking about him, even if it's uh, not necessarily the way I would I would do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I was actually really excited because Ridley Scott's first movie is about the Napoleonic Wars. And it's one mm-hmm. of my favorite movies. It's called The Duelists. Um, super small movie. I mean, he was a nobody. He was a commercial director when he made it. Mm. Um, and it's uh, about two officers in Napoleon's army who get involved in this weird feud that's kind of unclear why. Um, and just kind well, of, one keep of them fighting kind of duels dick, with each other. Like. Yeah, basically, basically, yeah, because one of them's a dick. And <laughs> um, and they get in this this uh, feud where they're just they're fighting duels over the course of the Napoleonic Wars. So it's about um you know these two dudes but it's also just kind of about this crazy story of the army um and i love that movie i I think that's my my personal pick for um best best film depiction of the napoleonic wars Mm -hmm. it's got keith Keith carradine and harvey keitel i I watched this because of you and i was not prepared for how much young keith carradine uh looks like alexander skarsgård i didn't remember that he was so uh Aryan, I guess. Um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's so I, I was thinking, you know, it's perfect. You know, his first movie about Napoleon and then his last movie, you know, he's well, not his, mm. maybe not his last movie, but he's he's getting up there. It's not not going to be many more. Got, he's like 85 or something. Still got Gladiator 2, you know, if he has anything to say about it. Yeah, we need another one. And um, as far as what I thought of it once I finally saw it. I mean, it was not at all what I was expecting. Uh, I very much enjoyed watching it. Um, mm-hmm. Although I'm obviously biased. I, you know, I enjoy being immersed in that, in that world. And to me, that was the best part of the movie is that it was very immersive and it really did evoke kind of the look and feel of that period pretty well. 
Um, but yeah. it was um, parts of it were uh, it, well, the whole movie is very weird. Mm-hmm. Parts of it are weird in a good way. Parts of it are weird in a bad way. Yeah. Um, it's like I mean, <laughs> a couple weeks, couple days ago, I saw a clip of a British historian and he uh, talking about the movie on the BBC, and he said something along the lines of, uh, "There's only." There's only 39 minutes of this movie that are historically accurate. And I was like, wow, that's really generous. I counted up way less than that. <laughs> so right, it's so a total me... fantasy. Wait, you're saying he never fun. yelled, uh, you guys think you're so great because you have boats? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, well, I can't say for sure, no. I have not found that particular quotation in my reading. Uh, that feels, like, that I feels like it. true to the spirit of what a French guy would think about the British, totally, right? 100%. Yeah. And also, I did like that scene a lot because that was, that was actually something that he did i mean he was like kind of the original like i'm gonna play the bad cop in this negotiation type of mm. guy where he would you know there's a great story of him uh he, he's negotiating with the uh, the Habsburgs, and he's trying to get them to sign this treaty and they're kind of uh this is a pretty bad treaty for us and he knew that his army did not actually have the juice to get to vienna but they right. didn't know that so he really needed them to sign this treaty and so he throws this huge tantrum that ends with him grabbing a piece of china off the wall and shattering it on the ground and saying that will happen to your empire if you don't sign this treaty and then storming out of the room and uh so one of his subordinates follows him you know thinking jesus he's like lost his temper that's not good and is so one of his subordinates follows him and is kind of like hey what's what's uh what's the deal there are you okay and he's like, oh, I'm fine. I just, we really need to get this treaty signed. And if I look like I'm really angry, they'll probably be worried. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah it was I, all just an act. I mean, he was capable. He had a horrible temper, but he he was smart enough that he could, you know, unleash it, you know, judici- judiciously in, in, a, in a negotiations like that. Yeah. That was one of the things that <clears throat> sort of stuck out to me in the biography I read was that he sort of had a, had a sense of theatricality about him. Yeah. yeah, it's the one thing the movie didn't touch upon as much as I would have liked was uh, his kind of his political genius as well as his like battlefield genius because he wasn't just able like it. It almost felt like he, um, you know, uh, left Egypt um, because he was just so desperately jealous uh, about Josephine as opposed to like the fact that he was like. Oh, I don't want to be here when we lose. And then uh and then just he was like, all right, you know, now's now's the time to take over the directory. So, I don't know. I, the, in terms of like historically accurate, I'm not an expert on this, uh obviously, uh but uh I did feel like you know what it it was? The movie could have focused on one part of Napoleon. <laughs> yeah. And I so, think I would have been happy with that. But instead, it was like a movie about all of Napoleon, which is kind of hard to do. So, uh, yeah, like I I, I can read you. Uh, f- there's a, a Ridley Scott profile in The New Yorker that came out about two weeks before the movie. Um, and it's very good in terms of giving you background on what they tried to do mm-hmm. uh, in this movie. And we can talk about whether they achieved that. And whether like that was the right approach necessarily. Sure. Uh, but I have some uh, some quotes from that piece. Um, Ten days before filming, Joaquin Phoenix went to Ridley Scott and said, "I'm agonizing over this. I don't know how to do it." The two spent several twelve-hour days psychoanalyzing the Emperor, scene by scene. 
We found that he's a split personality, Scott said. He is deeply vulnerable, and while doing his job, he's able to hide that under a marvelous front. His forceful personality was part of his theater. Uh, And then the screenwriter, uh, David Scarpa. One of the questions I found myself asking is, where am I supposed to come down on this guy? Uh, He was curious about Napoleon's marriage to Josephine, who carried on a flagrant affair with a hussar in her husband's army. What stuck was Napoleon's seeming ineptitude with women, Scarpa explained. His attachment to Josephine over the course of his entire life, but also the bizarre disconnect in a guy who was able to kill 80,000 people on a battlefield in Eastern Europe, almost as a sporting event, and yet, to him, it simply wouldn't be sporting to deal with his, a, with his rival for his wife's affections. Uh, the angle appealed to Scott. Who was this person? Why was he vulnerable, he asked. And it was this woman called Josephine. So... Like, that feels like what they tried to do with the movie. I, yeah. I don't know. To me, like, saying someone has a split personality is a bit of a cop-out. Right. Like, I feel like you're kind of your job as a storyteller is to, uh, you know, find the connections between. Right, to that, meld it. Yeah. yeah, to meld it together, to explain it a little. I mean, not necessarily to explain it, but I don't know. But see, To explore it. Yeah, and, see how they are uh, the same guy. Yeah. But, I mean, isn't, isn't that everyone to a certain extent? Yeah. yeah. I mean, especially people who have done, you know, notable things. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes I read book, but other times I take shit. And, uh, <laughs> like, it's crazy that this guy who read book also have poop come out of his ass. Dude, just, he, he create, he, he fill with multitude. That's the thing about him. He both. <laughs> Some people are just built different. But, I mean, uh, what do you think about that attempt? And, you know, like, do you think that they achieved that i guess he should have stuck with when he said i'm not sure where i'm supposed to come down on this guy he should have run with that because to me that's the really interesting thing about napoleon is that you never can quite pin him down Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a great uh arthur conan doyle line which is something like um whenever you find yourself about to absolve him you find something else terrible uh Mm -hmm. and whenever you you know, are about to condemn him, you find something good to change your mind. Well, it's like um, you're trying to, yeah, like that was one of the things that st- stuck, out, stuck out at me when I was reading about him. It's like, yeah, all, he seems like an asshole all the time, but then he always seems, he also seems like maybe less of an asshole than uh, everyone else in a comparable position. Yeah. And, you know, there's another good line about him that, you know, because because he had a larger than life personality um, you know, everyone has a good and bad side and everything in him was magnified, including his good and his bad side. So he was capable of, uh, he was, you know, very charitable with people his whole life. Um, yeah. It's really interesting to read his will. His will is like pages and pages long because he just remembered everyone who had mm-hmm. ever given him a good turn in his life and left the money in his will. Um, so that's the kind of guy he was. But then and you know he he would weep on the battlefields. You know that's something that they that, that they I think did not really grasp about his character is that he was not this like cold blooded you know war monger. He actually uh, several times like cried on the battlefields when he saw how many uh, people had suffered and died. Mm. Um, you know what's interesting about him is that he was able to do all that stuff anyway, despite you know having these you know he was a human being. He right. was not some some machine. Um, but he was able to just kind of put that aside um, because he was so, um, you know, we talked about, you know, him kind of putting up a front, playing a role. And he was so attached to this, you know, role of being a great man in history that he was able to just kind of 
set aside his his human feelings and and do what what he thought you know what he thought a great man of history would do at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I went I went into this movie knowing, having read that article and knowing that was going to be the take that they attempted, and so I sort of evaluated it based on you know that's the take. Let's uh, you know, and to me, like I thought the movie did a great job. Like the the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine you know, however true it might be. I thought it was an interesting depiction like that. I thought all the best parts were him and Josephine and their weird relationship where like, she doesn't quite take him seriously ever. And then, and that's kind of like all he wants. And like, like we're talking about the, the, the scene where they meet. Um, I like that he's attracted to her, but not for, not for any like reasons that make him a visionary. Like it's, it's all very obvious stuff. It's like, Oh, look lady with tits out. That's cool. (laughs) You know? Uh, and then, you know, just like this weird relationship that they had that, uh, you know, sort of overplays how much she was, uh, cheating and underplays how much he was. But, um, right. They made it interesting nonetheless, like, like having to, having to choose between um you know her this love that he had and even though basically everyone in his life was saying like no that's that's not good for you that's not going to be good for you including her uh but he couldn't couldn't keep away anyway i thought that was interesting but i thought like the the other side of it where he's supposed to be like they never really depicted why his soldiers liked him so much right and that feels like something like that was like something that, that occurred to me near the end when they show that great scene of of the the soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. rallying to him when he comes back from exile, which yeah. really did happen. That actually yeah. that scene's relatively accurate. Um, and that's like that but, like evokes an emotion even like without setup because like it's right because so it, it was totally unjustified. That was my thought. You know, like if you if you walked into this knowing nothing about Napoleon, you'd be like, wait, why do these guys? Why do they like him? Why yeah. aren't they just shooting him? This like buffoon who's been torturing the country for. <laughs> <laughs> right. for a decade why why don't they just shoot him yeah. um and uh, cuz they still uh, hated the bourbons more <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. you know they were just uh, uh, yeah i mean there was a lot of stuff they couldn't show contextually that at least that would be historically accurate but usually you know in filmmaking you make something up like you mm. show him hanging with his yeah it soldiers. seemed like Ridley wanted to like film some cool battle scenes which he did like a pretty yeah Pretty like a sort ones. of decent job at, I don't know. Oh, I thought they were pretty sick, even from the fact that it was filmed in a theater. <laughs> I was like, hell yeah. I, <laughs> I can only imagine what this looks like in a, a, a like for realsies. Like, I don't think he contextualized them at all, but he did a decent yeah. job making them like look cinematic. But he didn't, like, there was no, there was really no time given to why his soldiers might like him. Yeah. Part of that, I think, is actually one of the big challenges of filming a story about Napoleon is that um, the stuff, you know, kind of the good stuff about him, the, the re, you know, the, the, the reason people liked him and followed him is not very cinematic. You know, there's, there, you know, to really capture that, there would have to be long scenes of like Napoleon rewriting the legal code. Right. Mm-hmm. Napoleon staying up late in his office working. And like, yeah. that's just not fun to watch or yeah. very interesting. If a you're montage not like a of him being like, I'm going to liberalize. 
Right. But I mean, exactly, but I mean, exactly. he was like, like he he did remember everyone's name, and that was that's always something that comes up that he was like really good at remembering people's names and details about them, and like charming them that way, and like being nice to like servants and stuff like that at times. And I don't think they really got into any of that, right? Yeah, you know, it very much felt like you know you, you try to think of. When you look at like an historical adaptation, um, you, you try to, you know, kind of contextualize it with other, you know, kind of what what school of historical adaptation is this from and kind of what are the what are the ancestors of this this style of story about about this event. And uh, to me, it really reminded me of um, those uh, British propaganda cartoons <laughs> from the era, you know, that depicted him as this kind of angry little tyrant. Right. Yeah. Um, and that, that's very much what it, what it felt like to me. Um, Are the mean, British the, still uh, mad at him? You know? Yeah, actually that was something that really surprised me when I started the show. I mean, it's not everyone obviously, sure. but there is very much like, um, it, it very much feels like it's current to a lot of British people in the way that like the civil war is current to a lot of Americans. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like they still have emotions about that war that are, you know, that are real to them. And sure. it doesn't feel like something from the past. And to me, you know, this stuff is, it's very interesting and that's a great story, but I don't really have much personal investment in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's one of the challenges too, right? Because like the, while all this was happening, it was like Napoleon's, own propaganda competing with the British Empire's propaganda, and so you have these two like extreme depictions uh, of him uh, that are, you know, that I'm sure took up a lot of writing, and you're trying to reconcile those. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's funny is um, he, um, you know, because his, you know, French propaganda from this era is like you know, totally over the top, the other direction where, you know, he's like, you know, is he God? Well, we can't say, but, (laughs) um, but he, he personally was not into that. That's, that's something that really surprised me when Hmm. I started the show is you read his, his own writings. And I mean, he did have a massive ego, you know, what, what person is like, Oh, I think I'll be the next Julius Caesar. Um, but he didn't have that sort of grandiosity, um, or at least rarely in private had that kind of grandiosity. You know, he was he was often self-deprecating, would make fun of himself. Um, and, and it's it's just not um, it's just it's funny how, um, you know, those that propaganda image, you know, whichever side you're looking at, it's just a, a complete distortion of reality. Right. I mean, to me, like he struck me as brave but also like he made a a lot of decisions where he kind of had to like risk you know getting strung up or or guillotined like a lot of times but it also struck me that that time period uh it seemed to force a lot of people into you know potentially uh life (laughs) life ending decisions like like he kind of had to make a lot of those just because like that was you know like if he didn't make a decision he risked just as much, it seemed like. Well, you know, that's that's the time in a way. Um, right. You know, l- life is cheaper uh, 200 years ago than it is today. Um, it's kind of unpleasant to contemplate, but it's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, talk, talk about the casting. Like, to me, I loved watching Joaquin Phoenix try to do that. I mean, the movie takes place over like 28 years. So like trying to get a guy the right age, like g- good luck. Like, but you know, like that's, you're, you're depicting a pretty broad period. Um, so they got yeah. Joaquin Phoenix, who I think is like 
10 or 15 years older than Vanessa Kirby, who plays Josephine, who is right, which actually older make than any sense, yeah, which is actually older than uh. But it's also, yeah, but but again, like it's depicting such a, so. Like Josephine couldn't have children because she was too old, right? Wasn't that, isn't that kind of. Well, uh, that's debated. Some people say she might have had an abortion at some point in her life oh. and that could have gone wrong and, and, and affected that. Um, yeah. But we don't, we don't know. I mean, they found the drama in that. I thought that worked that, you know, yes, he loved this woman that couldn't have a child and like that was a big it i mean i think that's why the relationship works because it works on a few levels like on one level it's it's like he he's he's actually attracted to her just cuz he's kind of uh i don't know horny in like a fairly basic way but he also seemed to have this uh this don quixote like uh chivalric idea of what love was like supposed to look like right. and it seemed like he was sort of taken by <clears throat> his own ideas of what that was supposed to look like or what and that, he was that, super into femdom <laughs> yeah you know? uh you know and then you squeeze know squeeze on up... balls he said in french <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but in terms of the casting you know like napoleon was from corsica and he grew up like speaking italian patois for the first 10 years of his life or whatever right. and they didn't really get into that but i felt like the casting sort of worked yeah in they that did sense. it by making everyone else have a british accent and him <laughs> just sounding like joaquin phoenix from the joker <laughs> yeah but I, I feel like joaquin phoenix also has that natural outside quality because he's got like a weird shoulder that looks funky and a cleft palate and yeah. uh you know i i thought like the casting did some of the heavy lifting there yeah i agree i actually loved him as napoleon i mean yeah there's um I did too issues i had with the portrayal of him but those are mostly with the writing um i thought phoenix did a good job of um conveying you know because he was a very sort of morose introverted personality Mm -hmm. um uh they didn't really so much get into his charisma um which was a shame because that's you know the other side of that coin um i mean there's many accounts of people meeting him where they talk about you know you know, imagine like at the height of his powers, if you're going to meet Napoleon, you know, you're obviously that's, you know, very much built up in your mind of, you know, oh my God, I'm finally meeting the guy, you know, everyone's talking about who's the most famous man in centuries. And people meet him and they're kind of like, well, it's just this little Italian guy. What's the, yeah. I mean, he had an, he had an accent yeah. right. and kind of talk. I mean, he, he was very fluent in French, but like he said one word and you could hear that he was, you know, not mm-hmm. from France. Yeah. Um, he we're was going to shoot a... him up at a, we're going to shoot him up at a pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of a small guy and he, he was not, you know, he didn't really dress fancy. Um, he just wore this kind of basic uniforms. So people would meet him. They'd be kind of like, this is the guy. Yeah. And then he would start talking and interacting with them. They'd be like, oh, wow. He's, you know, he's a great man. So there yeah. was so- something about him that kind of transcended that kind of awkward figure that we see in the movie and i'm not sure we totally get i'm not sure they totally nailed that kind of ineffable charisma that he had right I, re- I mean ineffable i really means maybe you can't depict it right yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean i i really enjoyed even though i'm sure it's total bullshit like the the scene at the where he meets Josephine and she's like, I like your costume. And he's like, Oh, this is, this is my uniform. I'm, I'm the hero of Toulon. <laughs> like <laughs> it was very Rushmore. And I really yeah. liked, I really liked that whole sequence there. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, you know, he was, 
I think people because they, they really capture his his sort of awkwardness about about romance and women and sex. Yes, you know, because you got to remember he came from a military school, so yeah. he was literally not around women until he was seventeen years old. Yeah, and that's you know that's going to have an effect on you. He basically learned about romance from novels, right? Yeah, um, and so that, that he so fell he in did love have with a very first, naive with the first woman whose titties he saw. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he, he um, before Josephine, his kind of big love mm. was uh, the, the sister gang. of his brother's oh. wife. Okay. So literally, yeah. he just he met her at the wedding, and his brother was getting married to her sister. So he was yeah. kind of like, hey. Yeah, this is yeah. a family who fucks. Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, this way uh, we so, can stay brothers yeah. and sisters. We're all one fam. Like, I thought Vanessa Kirby did a great acting job, but I also felt like she was miscast more oh, so than Phoenix so on it. I thought she was great. I mean, I thought yeah. her acting was great. I thought she was miscast on a number of levels. Like, number one being that she just looks really British to me. Like, I look at that. I look at <laughs> Vanessa Kirby and I go, that's a British chick. Like, mm. she doesn't. She doesn't look super French to me, and also like the age thing. Sure. Um, I mean, I would love to see uh, Leia Skidoo in there because she's just like looks French to me. Like, mm. they could have, in order for Vanessa Kirby to have worked like age wise, they could have, um, they should have gotten Timothy Chalamet <laughs> to be yeah. Napoleon. Now that guy. That's I mean, he a looks French-looking guy. Yeah, yeah, he looks he yeah. looks like he could be French or Italian. That's perfect. And I would love it if he had, you know, a little a little Italian accent <laughs> talking <laughs> talking to privates, just being like, "You think that the man is fucking my wife? <laughs> Do you think he's fucking my wife?" Yeah, that would be great. Just get Joe Pesci to play him. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that was kind of, you know, I, I love that scene where he's um, talking to the Austrian emperor after yeah. Austerlitz and the guy's kind of like a little scared of him and doesn't know what to make of him because that, that must have uh, those scenes are scenes that I've imagined very often because, mm. you know, to these these uh, very high aristocrats, the crowned heads of Europe. It would have been like a Joe Pesci character that they were mm-hmm. interacting with, and they right. w- they would have been like, uh, you're, "You're really in charge of the country, you know. You seem like kind of like a you know low rent hoodlum." Yeah, um, and I, I liked that scene a lot because I thought that, that really captured that you know just that the, these people did not know what to make of him. Right, I would lo- love I'm- Napoleon asking the the uh, Habsburgs, I- "I'm funny how? Tell me, <laughs> I'm funny. How, how am I fucking funny?" That would have been <laughs> you. Fuck my wife. Yeah, you fuck my wife. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's one of the things that stands out in reading about this time period is like, and it stands out as one of the difficulties in depicting it because it's like you want it to be this simple, this simple like, oh, this army was fighting or this country was fighting that country for this reason. But it really it feels very medieval where it just seems like all these cousin fuckers were constantly right. uh, were constantly like jockeying for different like half the time half the time that he was fighting the russians it was like he was trying to get them to be friends with him again yeah well i actually kind of cuz there was that dynamic in his in his conflicts with russia yeah um, cuz this era of diplomacy is like um, you know, you know, one of those uh, one of those dances where you switch partners. Yes. Um, mm. 
you know, they're, you know, yesterday's ally is tomorrow's enemy and today's enemy is tomorrow's ally. Right. Um, and so the, the, uh, they did kind of get into that with uh, his his uh, dealings with the Russians, mm-hmm. but they could have done a better job, I think, of setting up the context of like, it was just like that back then. They were constantly, I mean, the Russians were doing the same thing with France and Britain, where they would kind of tilt towards Britain and then tilt back yeah. towards France when the, when the British pissed them off. Right. Um, and it's kind of... Uh, you know, like right before Austerlitz, like a couple months before Austerlitz, the the, the Russian emperor gave the order to uh, invade uh, Prussia. And then the Prussians are in the war on their side a couple months later. I mean, it's, you know, that that happens routinely in this era. Yeah, it's uh, like they, the Brit- they kind of restrict yeah. that to the, to the Russians. Yeah, and it's like the British sort of liked to depict him as like this tyrant who was like the reason that all these wars happen but it seemed like there wasn't really anything that he could do to other than fight wars just because everyone was constantly picking fights with each other in that era yeah i mean it's it's like um you know these countries in this in the 18th century are becoming incredibly powerful these you know the, the great powers we we usually call them um you know by 1800 they are all you know, many times more powerful than they had been in 1700. Mm-hmm. Um, bigger armies, better governments, more tax money, all that stuff. And so it's like big fish in a very small pond. And there's five of these countries, plus smaller countries that they can align with that are, mm-hmm. you know, big enough to be significant. And so it's just at the Thunderdome, you know, mm-hmm, yeah. everyone's interests are right up against someone else's interests. And so you look at how these wars start and it's very much like, you know, the French are like, hey, we're, you know, we're forced into this, you know, they'll be on our doorstep if we don't invade. And then, you know, you look at the other side and they're saying, hey, the French are right on our doorstep if we don't, you know, encroach on on their their buffer states or whatever, um, you know, we're sunk. We're not going to be a great power in 10 years. Hmm. And so, you know, they really... You know, it's kind of the overall conditions, uh, geopolitical conditions on the continent that are leading to these wars rather than any individual person. Right. And it's like he was, you know, he does he does have these sort of megalomaniacal, tyrannical qualities. But it also seemed like half of the reason that he took on some of those was because by, by virtue of France being a revolutionary state, all of the other monarchies felt sort of threatened by that and like there there wasn't it didn't seem like there was that much he could do about that yeah i mean he tried you know that that was the reason that he married um Marie Louise of Austria was right. he, he thought that you know finally you know once i'm married into one of these families they'll have no choice but to just accept me no, um and that's just not works. at all how it, Look how at it Meghan worked out. Markle, you know? <laughs> yeah. Princess Diana, right? They don't uh, give a shit. Hey Vince. Hey Matt. As you know, Vince, I love old internet memes. Remember the early internet's obsession with Chuck Norris jokes? I do remember that. Here's one. When Chuck Norris went to college, he told his father, Now you're the man of the house. <laughs> why why do you bring this up? Well, I was thinking about those old memes and I started thinking, I wonder what Chuck Norris is doing right now. What has he been up to? You know, I actually know the answer to that, Matt. Yeah, I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s 
and he still seems to have energy and health. You know, I saw the very same video, Vince, and in it, he says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. That's almost too powerful to contemplate, but yes. uh, it's true. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. Uh, his wife made the same change, and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and has energy all day. Uh, I am way younger than them, and I have energy for about two hours a day. Uh, and the problem is, you know, that many of us do not include fruits and vegetables and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. I love special videos, and you can watch it too by going to mymorningkick.com slash pod yourself, and it may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's M-Y-M-O-R-N-I-N-G-K-I-C-K.com slash pod yourself, mymorningkick.com slash pod yourself. Go there now and watch this very special Chuck Norris video. I found some like a lot of reviews of Napoleon just have all these historical questions in them. And I wanted to ask you a few of them since you know so much about Napoleon. Uh, One of the questions from an Esquire review, uh, was this man really known to say things like dignity brought me to this lamb chop? (laughs) You know, I actually, you know, we talked at the beginning about his sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I actually could see him saying something like that. Great to line. his friends and family, um, because he he would often, you know, there's a great, um, well, here, here's an example of kind of how people misread his character. There's a great quotation of him talking about the Egyptian campaign, where he's like, oh, yeah, I had all these dreams. I was going to write a new Quran. I was going to ride into yeah. Jerusalem on an elephant. Mm-hmm. And all the time you see historians quote that as like, wow, this guy was a, you know, fucking egomaniac. Who else would talk like that? But in the, if you look at the context, he's making fun of himself. Mm-hmm. He's saying, oh, yeah, back, back in the day, I thought I was so great. I thought I was going to take over all of Egypt and become Alexander the Great, blah, right. blah, blah. What an idiot I was. Yeah. So he was totally capable of making fun of himself. Now, he, he did not tolerate people doing that to him in public. Sure. Uh, they had censorship in Napoleonic France. Mm-hmm. But in private, you know, with his friends and family, um, he, he was like that all the time. He did kind of go in there and was like, well, these people seem to love this Mohammed guy. I think we, I think I can use this, uh, like to my advantage somehow. Right. Like, wasn't he trying to sort of, uh, you know, play, uh, play trying to free the Egyptians from what is it? The Mamelukes? Did I make that up? Yeah. Is that it? Mamelukes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's still an Italian insult, by the way. Right. Isn't that a fucking Mamaluke? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's fucking Mamaluke. Yeah. He, um, but yeah, he he actually personally admired Muhammad quite a bit, and he kind of thought that you know very naively he like read all these books about Egypt and Islam on his way there, yeah. you know like like you would as a tourist or something, and he, you know he from these books he was like oh their their beliefs are not so different than ours maybe mm-hmm. I can just kind of finesse this and sort of give them the impression that I'm that maybe we're sort of something akin to Muslim too, mm. and of course I mean people. People who actually were Muslim and had more, read more than a few books on it saw through that pretty quickly. Right. Yeah, I, I felt like a take that they missed was like uh, one thing that struck me was he kind of seemed like a nerd. Like he would go places and he'd be like, "I've read ten books about this place, so now I know exactly what it's like." 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's the most kind of, European um, thing of all time, though, isn't that? Isn't that what <laughs> yeah. Europeans do? They just go up to a place and be like, I read one book about India. We should own it. You know, that's how it goes. Well, and that, and that was kind of, you know, the, his expedition to Egypt was a, a prototype mm. for a lot of the colonialism that came later. Yeah. 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 For sure. One thing that I thought was interesting reading about that period was just the, the French being surprised, being very shocked that, like, uh, getting butt fucked by by the, by the Egyptians and the Mamluks was like yeah. a common thing that they did. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> what was that? They would like <laughs> they did a lot of capturing, and then they would like fuck the the prisoners of war. The French would no fuck, the oh the no, Mamluks yes. would fuck the French. Yes. Okay. Well, Mamluks would fuck anyone. I mean, they would. Hell yeah. If, if you if you came into their power, they would. Uh, they wanted to remind you that you were under their power. Uh, right. They're pansexual. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. We're talking about pan. This pan. Yeah. We're about pan. <laughs> Another question from the same review. Uh, did the and I had this question myself actually. Uh, did mm. the coup d'état of eighteen Brumaire less resemble a history altering political event and more a particularly shrooms inspired chase scene from Scooby Doo? Yes, I actually, that is my favorite part of the yeah. movie is the coup. Yeah. And it is actually the most accurate part of the movie, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. I've always thought that my, my, one of my, I've given a lot of thought, obviously, to how I would adapt a, a, a Napoleon story to the screen. Oh, I and thought I've you always, were going to say to how I would have done the coup, the Brumaire. Not talking about that on a podcast. The, uh, one of my ideal kind of Napoleon movies would be getting uh, Armando Iannucci, the guy who made Death of Stalin, yes. to do a movie just about the coup, because the coup is so silly. One yeah. of the things that they do, it's actually, in a sense, sillier than the movie, because one of the things they don't show is that they, um, all of the members of the parliament had to wear these uh, bright red Roman-style togas with these weird blue hats and they looked kind of, I mean, to people who were obsessed with classical Rome, like the, like the French at that time, they looked cool, but you couldn't really move around in them. And mm. so like when they're rushing Napoleon, like apparently a lot of them like stepped on their robes and just right, face planted. They're, they're all flapping around. <laughs> and then when the soldiers come in, the guys are like jumping out the windows in these things. And yeah. then the soldiers are doing like an Easter egg hunt around the grounds of the palace, finding these guys because they're trying to hide but they're wearing bright red robes. I love that. Um, yeah. that so it's yeah. a, it's a it's a very it's a total farce. Uh, even even to the point that that thing where Lucien draws the sword and points it at him yeah. and says, "I will kill my brother if he betrays the liberty of Frenchmen." That really happened. He really mm -hmm. said that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that 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 is to me the best part of the movie because you know it's the part of Napoleon's biography that kind of fits most with the tone of the movie, all the absurdity. And kind of making him look small and, and mm -hmm. pathetic in a way, um, yeah. and so I, I thought that, that that sequence was um, by far the standout of the movie. Yeah, I was surprised if, they sorry, did yeah. it because, uh, well, I mean, I was happy that they did it because I I agree that it's like one of those like um, you know, uh, real life is stranger than fiction things where it's just such a funny sequence of events uh, that coup um, and the way that like you know they were. You know, it was like the first time you ever read about Napoleon being like, oh, this is OK. We're going to have to, like, figure this out. People aren't just going to let me do this. Um, and like he's he's like standing there just being like, hey, shut up, guys. I'm trying to do a coup here while they're all booing him. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, I was surprised they did it because they, they also did. Um, 
they kind of did one of the inaccuracies that I saw uh, was the uh, was Robespierre's uh, death um, because I feel like he hid out in like the Hotel de Ville or something like that or like yeah, like him and they sort of compress it so yes. that all the stuff happens in the in the Parliament right building yes. rather than. What really happened is when when he lost, you know, as it depicts, well, not mm -hmm. exactly, obviously, but, you know, he lost control of the convention mm -hmm. and then le he left and him and all his buddies went and hid out. I, I can't remember now if it was the Hotel de Ville or the Jacobin headquarters or yeah. some public building. Yes. And then the, the National Guard went in there to get him. Yeah. And depending on sources, either then he shot himself or one of the National Guardsmen shot him in the face. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but he is uh, supposed to have shot himself and not died. <laughs> and then his jaw was just hanging off. And then. They, oh, right. Yeah. He tried were, to kill himself and fucked it up. Yeah. And I, people were really disappointed at his uh, execution because they wanted, you know, to get their last licks at, at Robespierre. I mean, he shows up and he's like half dead and can't yeah. talk. And people were kind of like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> apparently, yeah. Apparently, they also pulled off his uh, his handkerchief that was keeping his jaw on. <laughs> so as that, when they pulled it off, his jaw just started hanging, and he just started squealing. And everyone was like, "Ooh, kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him!" <laughs> Which I think would have been a funny scene. They should have had Roger Ebert play Robespierre. <laughs> <laughs> wow! You piece of shit. Sorry, that's just Matt does a, a, a Roger Ebert. Great impression of. Uh, anyways, um, but yeah, and there was also uh, what was the name of the fucking angel of death uh, kid? Um, Sanjust. Sanjust. Didn't he uh, also hide out and like he like jumped off like the third floor or something and like broke all of his legs and, and shit. Um, no, that was, um, I believe that was Couton. Oh, okay. Who, who, uh, yeah. When the, when the, when the guard showed up, he was like lying on the street in front of the building, like, right. Oh God, kill me. Yeah. Cause yeah. he had, he had jumped off trying to escape. <laughs> like that, that is like, to me, a companion sequence with the, uh, what 18th of Brumaire, like coup. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, that's something I, I always appreciate what historical movies show. Because, like, great historical events almost always have that farce element. Yes. Because people don't know what's going on. You know, things are happening without precedent. And so mm -hmm. no one knows what to do. And, you know, people in a crisis are just kind of like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to do this, even though it seems crazy. And so you get a lot of, you know, crazy, goofy stuff happening at times like these. And I yeah. like that it, it, it got into that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean that seemed especially true of like post-revolution France where everybody was sort of uh just like running from different mobs and trying yeah. to figure out who who the which strongman had the most juice at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And I but you know, I uh I I love the French Revolution um I think more than Napoleonic era. And so like for me, uh, as soon as the, you know, um, as soon as the coup happened, I was like, okay, you know, now, I, but a, a big part of me was like, I really want a fucking French Revolution movie, man. I feel like there isn't, is there, is there, what's a good French Revolution movie? There well, is that's no. a good question. It yeah, just doesn't exist. I've been looking for a long time. I, I found a French movie 
um, that was like pretty good, but you know, they're all speaking in French and I'm like, what is this bullshit? <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, apparently there's like a, a Gerard Depardieu movie where he plays Danton and I haven't seen that, but like, I want to see a fucking, I want to see a French revolution ass movie. That's what I want to see. That's what I want. Or a mini series maybe. Yeah. That's actually what I want. I want a mini series. I, I was trying to watch something. There was something on Netflix that looked like it was about the French Revolution, but then it was about zombies or something. Mm. Have you guys Ooh. seen that? No. It's like, I, I I would steer far clear of that. I that yeah. is a genre I am not a fan of. Of what if we put zombies into this? Yeah, yeah no, into same. the fucking French Revolution. I'm like, just do the French. Mm. It's, it's interesting enough already. You don't need the, you don't need the zombies. People right. are already acting like zombies in right. the, in the in the real story. Yeah, it's stupid. But uh, in ter- okay, so in terms of battles in the movie, um, hell yeah, you know, I, like I know that they took some liberties with Austerlitz, but I thought the liberties were fair and cinematic. Like that was a cool, very cool se- sequence where they're uh, drowning under the ice, um, and then you know the one he's taken. Really, Scott's taken probably the most criticism for is him like shooting the pyramids uh like it didn't ruin the movie for me but i also was like yeah you probably didn't need to have them shooting at the pyramids why not it looks cool you're wrong (laughs) like you know i think they maybe should have maybe a better approach for this movie would have been to just totally lean into the absurdity and make it almost like you know tex avery napoleon Mm -hmm. and just show him blowing one of the pyramids up show him blowing the sphinx up yeah, that would have been that. Yeah, I feel like it should have made a decision to be that movie, or not be that movie. And right. Yeah. It kind of like, it kind of goes in between with the pyramid shooting. But for me, well, then, I was like, yeah. it doesn't ruin anything, so it's it, cool. It didn't ruin anything. So, but then, yeah, it didn't ruin anything for me. But I thought it was maybe a little over the top. I agree with you. You know, if you're gonna do it, like lean into it. Um, Waterloo, I thought kind of sucked like i don't know what i was supposed to be getting out of that sequence like they sort of set it up like oh yeah he was uh facing two armies and he was trying to he was trying to like beat one uh so then that he so then he could turn around and beat the other and they both came together at the same time but I, i felt like it didn't really come together in a way that made sense in the movie yeah the waterloo sequence um also had just some weird you know, I did. I did not enjoy the uh, the operator, the sniper. Yeah, um, that just that, that would seemed like some from another movie, another time period. Um, just weird stuff too. Of like, uh, you know, the battle scenes. I, I was kind of torn on because on one hand they looked very cool. He was able to get a lot. Of, you know, get a lot of cool visuals out of those scenes. But on the other hand, um, I feel like they did not really give you much of a sense of the scale of these battles. Right. Yeah. You know, you you um got the impression from these things that they were like, you know, they were over in like a couple hours. Right. And there was maybe a couple thousand people involved. These, these things lasted multiple days sometimes. And there were yeah. like, you know, some of these bigger battles, there's almost half a million people involved. And you, I feel like you did not really get a sense of that. They seemed like... um They kind of reminded me of small medieval battles. Like mm-hmm, it right. looks like um something from uh, Kingdom of Heaven. Right. Yeah, there wasn't yeah. enough blood too. I feel like uh, part of the battlefield. You know, there's like things the that horse. I expect. Like a, like I, the cannonball of the horse was kind of cool. That was cool, but there's things I expect from movies that take place in this era. Number one, it's I want to see peasants covered in shit. And, num- <laughs> and number two, I want to see a uh, battlefield soaked in blood. You know, and I feel like when you have 
it's a Ridley Scott budget, like show the how big the battle was. That's that's what I'm looking for. So yeah, Waterloo. Like he's got the sort of cool, I guess, sequence where the cavalry is charging the British and the British are forming into squares. Um, that was like kind they of a leave cool... their entrenchments to form squares. What's the point of entrenchments then? Right. Yeah. And also, it, I, I like part of me was like, isn't the whole Napoleon thing like he like invented the best square? And like no one could beat this infantry square. And so like for me, I was like, well, show Napoleon doing a good ass square first and then <laughs> have them be like, oh, no, now they're doing the square. <laughs> well, wasn't part of the thing was that he sort of had invented tactics like in the late 1790s and the early 1800s that were really effective. But then he sort of got overconfident in them right. and didn't um, and didn't like and didn't uh, stay with the times in terms of technology and tactics? Well, um, the technology does not change much. Actually, at, at Waterloo, the French are using um, the same model musket that they were using in the American Revolution. Oh. So um, the technology is almost the same throughout. But hadn't the British um, like upgraded to like to like upgraded to like rifled muskets and like a couple uh, other they things? They had that... some. Um, mm-hmm. the, 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 the sniper, the operator... In mm-hmm. at Waterloo in the in the green uniform, those guys did have have rifles, but that was like a new experimental, um, you know, only a small portion of the army. Yeah. Uh, what really I would say, Napoleon um, did not. Uh, so his his sort of his system develops in the 1790s, and he's kind of you know learning by trial, applying stuff that he had you know thought about in theory from his uh, his education. Um, and then he's pretty much set as a general by, I don't know, certainly by 1805. Mm-hmm. Um, but then his enemies are keep adapting. And, you know, so by the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you know, at the beginning, it's it's this revolutionary new system versus an old system. And by the end, it's a, you know, revolutionary, no longer so new system versus o- older systems that have either rebuilt themselves or adapted and so they're basically equivalent. Right. So basically, you know, Napoleon is not uh, not really a great innovator in tactics um, after that initial learning period. Right. Um, so like they show he, he fell off during the hundred days too, right? Wasn't he just like kind of more uh, like people were like, "Hey, he's not as good as he usually." Well, is. that's very debated. Um, some of that is probably true. I mean, he also at that point is probably already having early symptoms of stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. So he's not very well, like is his health. Uh, he also does not have his chief of staff during the 100 days. Uh-huh. And so a lot of people say that his poor performance because, you know, this is the guy who had been his chief of staff since he was first appointed as a general. Wow. So he literally had never commanded troops in battle without this guy at his side. And then all of a sudden he's, you know... In a, in a very bad strategic situation and having to do it without this guy he'd relied on his whole career. Mm. Um, so I think that's probably the main reason that he performed so much worse. They showed him sort of being overconfident at Waterloo, um, but they didn't really give a sense of why. What what was your take on what was going on there? I, I wouldn't say that he was really overconfident at Waterloo. It was more that um, he was not a person who let... Uh, let the odds psych him out. Mm. Um, he, you know, I, I think this is a, this is a trait that you see in a lot of great military commanders. Where when yeah, they're and Han Solo you know, too, 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, when they're presented with some situation, they don't think, oh, no, I'm fucked. This is going to be so hard. What am I going to do? Yeah. They just kind of look at it objectively and say, okay, the only, you know, what are my paths to success here and how yeah. do I achieve them, no matter how slim they might be? Um, so he, I, I think, deep down knew what a long shot the 100 days were. Um, but, you know, he was the kind of person... If there's even a one percent chance of success, he's going to keep pushing and try to try to snare that one percent. Yeah, he's yeah. a winner. Okay, so to me, to me, I, I don't know why, but to me, like the movie that I'd want to see about Napoleon is just the part where he's on Saint Helena because yes, 100%. that is such a strange. It's a very funny time too. It's, it's a like very his, funny time. His yeah. captors he, are being dicks to him the whole yeah. time. And uh, yeah, go on. His captors are being dicks to him. He's like making friends with, uh, you know, like the teenage girls uh, on the island. And then he like sort of gets really sad and depressed when they leave. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, and he's wanting people to call him emperor and they're yeah. not. It's just it's all petty and it's all uh, it's like all of his personality traits sort of you know reduced down to this really small scale gus van sant should make a the last days but yeah. for napoleon <laughs> like haven't there's actually there's a good um it's an old indie movie uh called the emperor's new clothes and mm. the premise is that um napoleon decides to escape from saint helena and he's going to do this by switching with a double mm. and so he he pulls it off they make the switch He's on his way to France, going to return to power. And when he lands in France, the first thing that happens is someone comes up to him and says, hey, have you heard the news? Napoleon died on St. Helena. The The double has died in his absence. And so the whole world is convinced he's dead. Mm. And he kind of decides, well, maybe the time is not right for me to announce myself. Maybe, you know, I need to wait for them to discover that this guy's not the real Napoleon. Yeah. And so he's kind of wandering around France, sort of trying to... <laughs> Uh, trying to reckon with his legacy and and figure out you know if he should you know announce himself and and, and try to seize power you know a yeah. third time or just be like a regular guy who's just happy to be alive still <laughs> that's good right that's, right that's and a it, great it's a fun movie I love that so what yeah like what's your like that's my that's the Napoleon movie that I kind of want to see like what what's the version that you would have liked to see. Uh, I always like biopics that sort of focus on a small period of time. Mm -hmm. Like I liked Lincoln a lot because it wasn't trying to be Lincoln's whole life. It was about this, you know, it was specifically about sort of his political, um, the political side of his career. And it was specifically about, you know, one, how one he only part talked of his in allegories. Yeah. And so I, I thought that I think that, that would be a good approach for Napoleon, you know, just because his life is so big and varied. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe a movie just about um, the coup and, and his rise to power or a movie just about the first Italian campaign mm -hmm. or just about the Egypt campaign would be yeah. really interesting, I think. Someone on Twitter made a joke, which I actually think would be fun. Which is someone should do it like um, letters from Iwo Jima, flags of our fathers, mm -hmm. and do yeah. like one like of like just the nastiest, you know, that just depicted him as this horrible warmongering tyrant brute, yeah. and then also do one that showed him as like you know the avatar of the Enlightenment and like the you know the greatest man of the age, yeah. um, just to kind of get because he is kind of a you know there are many sides to his character and it would be interesting to see people kind of you know, splitting that up and trying to actually, you know, bifurcate him into good and bad and explore that. 
So what, like, what was, <clears throat> what was it about Napoleon that, that interested you that made you want to, you know, study so much about him? Well, um, so when I was a little, really little, like really, really little, like four, um, I lived in France and when you're in France and you're like an inquisitive four-year-old, you're asking questions about everything. And the answer is always, oh, like Napoleon did that, or that was under Napoleon, or Napoleon this, Napoleon that. And so I just kind of got interested in him, you know, the way a little kid is interested in, you know, you know, cowboys and Indians or World War II or, you know, whatever. And um, from there, it just kind of, you know, Napoleon's one of those people where once you start thinking about him and noticing him, you see his influence everywhere. You see him referenced everywhere. And so it just kind of self-reinforces, you know, it's like a, like a song you can't get out of your head that you keep hearing on the radio. Right. It seems yeah. like he is this creature of the revolution and the enlightenment. Um, and then he ends up spending most of the latter half of his life almost like uh, imitating imitating like the Romans and imitating like medieval uh, monarchs. Like he seems like he ended up forced to not forced or maybe, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, forced is the right word, but he seemed like, like he ended up having to uh, mimic all of the things that the revolution was dedicated to uh, eradicating in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, uh, the tension of his whole career, you know, is, I mean, like a lot of people who lived through the French Revolution, you know, who were on the revolutionary side, you know, his kind of view of it by the end was, well, we did so much good stuff, but also it was a complete disaster. Right. And so his whole latter career is trying to, okay, well, how do you reconcile that? You know, that it was very good, but also a total disaster. You know, and, and the answer is you try to step back the bad stuff while maintaining the good stuff. But, you know, when you're in the moment, how do you make those judgments of, you know, what's expendable or what's what's an excess that went too far and what's something that we can, you know, bring back from the old ways that wasn't so bad? I mean, no, none of these things are clear in the moment. Um, you know, we know that, uh, you know, aristocracy, that the power of the, 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 the old uh, nobility and the landholders was... Uh, you know, in some ways, their victory over Napoleon was kind of their last hurrah. Um, yeah. And we know that because we live in the bourgeois world where those people don't really matter anymore. Right. But no one at the time knew that. Uh, and uh, no one at the time knew how kind of the, you know, they were at this, they knew that they were at this uh, sort of watershed moment where the old was going out and the new was was coming in. But, you know, in that process, there's always things from the old that stay away that, that, that stay in and there's always things from the new that um, don't stick around. So, you know, he, he's trying to manage that process from the top and make those calls himself just kind of based on his like experience and intuition. And uh, so, you know, he's in a certain sense, he's uh, he's improvising and flailing and just trying to figure it out as he goes along. Yeah. yeah it feels like, you know, the revolution created this uh, sort of power vacuum and they needed something to fill it and they didn't know what that should look like and so it's like this weird flailing attempt at like mimicking aristocracy like mm -hmm. trying to go back to dynastic succession and even even like the fashions like you were talking about uh in the in the coup days where it felt it felt like very 
um, like Russian oligarch chic where they're just right. trying to pull <laughs> pull from very like pull from um, traditions that they thought were cool that like didn't necessarily go with each other like oh we're gonna we're gonna wear russian togas but we're also gonna like have uh this medieval shit and it was like this sort of grab bag of bling yeah yeah, the russian oligarchs also coming from that same background of yeah being being in a revolutionary state and then coming to the conclusion that that's you know that 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 road has been traveled far enough and it's time to go go back to something else but how do you go back after all so much has been destroyed you know Right. It's a very it's a not not a not a dissimilar situation in some ways. The movie I want is about is I want a sequel. <laughs> about it's I want Napoleon it to be called two. Napoleon 2, Napoleon 3. And <laughs> and <laughs> it's just about Napoleon the 3rd, the most uh farcical Napoleon. Uh he's he's my favorite one. And I feel like uh, just showing showing his brief but amazing uh, presidency slash uh, uh, empire would be, I think, a much more um, like you could do it in one movie and it would be great. You know, hey, you could um, base it on Karl Marx's 18 Brumaire. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's I like that. You're cooking. I think that's that, you know, because it's like because then you're getting the the Napoleon that. that people want because people think when people think of napoleon at least here in america where we actually just think of napoleon the third a lot of the times because he was the little guy people and and he was the kind of farcical figure and that you know pumped up and trying to be something he wasn't yeah I, i agree yeah like you know he was he was the one who like whenever anyone describes you know napoleon I'm, I'm, you know, and I've now realized, like, oh, this whole time cartoons were just doing Napoleon the Third, um, and uh, yeah. Anyways, that's that's the movie I want. I want to, I want to watch, uh, I want to watch him rise to power despite being completely um, useless <laughs> and completely <laughs> just riding on his his name like it is. Uh, that's a great movie. Either so, that or fun, a movie actually, about like the hundred days. I think I would watch that. Too. So, so one of the things, that, like in in the actual movie that they made, that I wanted more of, or I wanted uh, some background on, like sure. what was the Duke of Wellington's deal? Because I I really liked that they had Rupert Everett playing this just sort of disgustingly British uh, <laughs> snob kind of guy who was a dickhead. Like what was. I feel like there was at least 25 more minutes of him somewhere on the cutting room floor. What was, uh, like, what was that character like? And what could that movie have been? No, I gotta be honest. I don't find Wellington very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, that's one of the, something that, again, to me, this is some of the, uh, not quite understanding how some of my British friends relate to these things. Uh Um, I've never understood. I mean, there's British people who say, oh, you know, he was so much greater than Napoleon. And it's like, to me, they're not even comparable. I mean, you know, Wellington to me is, um, you know, not much more than just kind of, you know, he's British general number 75, you know, he's just kind of off the, uh, the inventor of beef Wellington, big deal. (laughs) Uh, he's just kind of a, you know, he is an aristocratic, uh, uh, British general who cut his teeth in India. And, you know, there's some interesting stuff about his life and about his personality, but fundamentally I, I don't see him as terribly different, 
you know, the, the, what's remarkable what's remarkable about him is that he beat Napoleon at Waterloo. And that's basically, you know, had that not happened, had a different general been in charge at Waterloo, had, you know, had Napoleon decided to go against the Russians and the Austrians instead of the Prussians and the British, um, I don't think he would be very well known today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think he'd be about as well known, you know, do, do people know who Marshal Kutuzov was? No, who that? <laughs> in Russia, yes, but here, no, and probably it would be like that um, with Wellington, where he would not be this this figure that we all know of, and probably Nelson would be the you know the, the British face of the war to us. Mm. Um, so yeah, Wellington, you know, to me this was there was a lot of telltales uh, that this movie was made by a Brit, mm -hmm. and one of them is the fact that um, you know Wellington is like kind of the main antagonist at the end, rather than just Alexander um, of right. Russia. Who right. is who? They they do give a lot of screen time, and I actually very much enjoyed their portrayal of him. Um, particularly, they actually depicted him as as young as he actually was, which really yeah. hammers home what an interesting character he was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wanted get rid of Wellington. Fuck that guy. We okay. want more Alexander. We yeah. want more Frederick William. Yeah. But I yeah. think I think maybe in that sense, the the line about the boats um, was actually pretty telling. Like he sort of was impotently annoyed that the British had so much power just because uh, they had so many boats. But that was actually, it seemed like a really big thing that he was never able to overcome. Well, that's kind of one of the, you know, it's hindsight's 2020. I'm always a little, I always roll my eyes a little bit when people Monday morning quarterback Napoleon. Sure. And it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. okay, how many conquests do you if have under your I belt? I were Napoleon, I wouldn't have gone to Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's up but um he does seem to have not really fully understood naval warfare like he he had this kind of intuitive sense for politics and land warfare right. but not for naval warfare yeah um which is funny because he almost became a naval officer when he was a young man but yeah and he almost uh invaded britain uh, yes that and... came that within i mean there was a window where he theoretically could have done it and he just never gave the order. Right, because he was like, I don't think we're going to win. I got to go to Egypt. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, right, there's that. Um, yeah. I don't, it's it's unclear how much he even could have done by by the time that he took power. And like he... So like there was there was a lot of criticism from like the French historians that they never touched on uh like the slavery and and him um dealing with slavery in the colonies what was the uh, story there Oh yeah to to me this is the uh you know talk about the the bad side of Napoleon's character mm -hmm. to me this is the by far the biggest black mark uh, on his record is that you know the French revolutionaries had ended slavery and uh, by the way, Napoleon had been very much in favor of that. That was his political faction that got rid of slavery. Yeah, uh, he was a, uh, you know, not a not an act, not a political activist, but just by conviction, he had been an abolitionist as a young man. Right, and so he very much knew this was wrong <laughs> right. and did it anyway. And he yeah he reinstated slavery in in almost all the French colonies. He tried um, he to tried in, in Haiti. <laughs> <laughs> well, he never actually. That's like kind of a misconception. He oh, never officially. Right? He never officially brought, tried to bring slavery back to Haiti, but there's very little question that had he successfully reconquered it, mm 
Uh, that would have been coming. He did it everywhere else, so see, we have every reason to suspect he would have, but he right. never officially First he did. tried to, he was going to reconquer it, and then the allegation goes that he was going to re-enslave. But... Yeah, which is probably, I mean, it's no way to know, but I mean, probably. That's probably true. I mean, based I mean, he on had an opportunity to, he had an opportunity to, uh, like, recognize the, the government of the slave revolt, and he sort of undercut it instead, right? Well, more than an opportunity, he wrote a letter, actually, um, Toussaint Louverture, the leader of of the Haitian slave uh, rebels, wrote Mm -hmm. him a letter. um, And at that time, he was also the the governor of the colony, um, officially, but wrote wrote Napoleon a letter basically saying, hey, I know that, you know, our interests might not align perfectly, but, you know, I think you're someone I can work with and I would like us to work together if you can you know, tell me what you what you want to do in the, with my country. I can, you know, we can we can come to an arrangement. And Napoleon wrote him back a letter, basically congratulating him on all his success and saying, "Yes, you are my governor, and we'll work together on policy." And the letter was written and signed, but never sent. That's right. And he changed his mind before he sent the letter. So that is a, you know, historians don't like those kind of what ifs, but that's a real, that's a juicy one because that is mm-hmm. an actual. You know, the letter was written and signed, so. That really could have come to pass, and that's my personal uh, favorite for uh, historical what ifs about Napoleon. Yeah, I mean, it would have, you know, uh, I think been it would have made Napoleon not have this horrible black mark, um, but it also would have deprived us of like tons and tons of Frenchmen dying from yellow fever. And I feel like <laughs> I'm pro that, you know what I mean? <laughs> Just well, kidding, French. I love you. <laughs> Yeah, those guys uh, on the Haiti expedition. Uh, well, let's say a lot of them had it cut. <laughs> that was right. A, that they was did. probably the probably the most brutal fighting of the whole Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, and they were they were like the biggest sons of bitches. So uh, I, uh, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. I, I like watching bad people die. <laughs> it's fun. That would be speaking of movies about the Napoleonic Wars. That is something that has been, you know. Th- in the works and then stopped at various times uh, for decades is a, a really good, juicy uh, Toussaint Louverture movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would rule. I want to see. Yeah, that. I didn't really like. I always, uh, you know, like my reading of history was like, oh yeah, he uh, overthrew the slave owners and like became governor, and it's sort of like this uh, triumphant story. But then, like in real life, he like died in jail in France. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, but that's a different movie. This right. is Napoleon. And uh, so uh, they also we, like the Russia okay. expedition. Um, what did you think of that? Depi- I, I feel like there's the simplistic, uh, take on it, which is like, oh, he should have never gone into Russia in the first place and didn't, you know, didn't prepare for the winter and whatnot. But it, it, uh, in reading about it, it seems like it was a little more complicated than that. Like he actually had a chance to to um, to uh, to continue that that expedition more than he did. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the kind of pop culture depiction of like, oh yeah, you know, the French went into Russia and they didn't bring enough food with them, and they all they all starved and froze to death, right? Uh, because of the horrible Russian winter. Um, I, I've never really liked that. Um, interpretation of it. I mean, because A, actually the French really did 
prepare very much for, for the horrible Russian winter. They just, it wasn't enough. Um, and second of all, um, it really doesn't, you know, in that interpretation, you almost forget that there was a, a another army facing the French. Um, and, the, and the Russians fought very well in that campaign. And that's, you know, why um, the, the French campaign was unsuccessful. You know, the weather was a big part of it and the, the poor logistics and all that stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, um, they were defeated by the Russian army. The the Russians were had a better strategy and a better approach and were um, able to, you know, execute their strategy and force the French to fight the campaign the way the Russians wanted them to. Um, and the Russians were, you know, using the conditions as a good military leader is supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they um, they won. They, they beat Napoleon. I mean, wasn't there wasn't there a period in there where like he sort of took his foot off the gas at one point because he was more interested in trying to get uh, Alexander to um, negotiate rather than, uh, you know, like, like weren't there points where he could have taken, taken more of his army out and, uh, and I don't know, like it's been debated um, yeah. around several um, incidents uh, during, during Napoleon's later career um, where you know, there's, you know, you kind of look at it from a bird's eye perspective and it's like, hey, they they won a battle and then didn't really pursue the enemy afterwards. Or, um, you know, they, they could have easily trapped an enemy corps if they'd done this and they didn't do that. Um, and that's always debated, you know, because you got to remember, you know, there's that famous line from Clausewitz that, you know, war is just politics continued through other means. Um, and so these battles are... Um, political maneuvers as well as, um, you know, strategic maneuvers. And so you, you, you do wonder about that sometimes. Um, like I said, there's several points of Napoleon's career where that's been argued. And as far as I know, there's no definitive proof, um, but it is something to keep in mind always about, about Napoleon's campaigns is that this is still, um, you know, you're entering the era of total war where you know you're just trying to destroy and crush the enemy country and enforce your will on them and you're mobilizing your whole society to do that. Um, but in the earlier eras, that's not how war was. And there are still in the Napoleonic Wars echoes uh, of that older era of uh, limited war. Right. I mean it seems like he was had I think it seems like that is what makes uh, a cinematic depiction of him hard is he he was constantly having that choice between um you know, take the battle further or take it just far enough to try and uh, to try and extract like a political a settlement that was advantageous. Yeah. And, you know, it's just hard when you look at battles up close. They're so chaotic. People don't know what's going on. Um, people are working with uh, incomplete or incorrect information. And so it's really hard to you know really nail down definitively. Um, sometimes, you know, oh, this happened because, you know, X happened because of Y, you know, a lot of times it's very, you know, there's a lot of factors at play and people who are acting on their own and it can be hard to, to unpack. Right. Um, yeah. Well, if I had been Napoleon, (laughs) I think if Mark Wahlberg had been, had been Mark Wahlberg had been Napoleon, it would have gone down. It would have gone down a little bit differently. Okay. I think, uh, would have got got along better with the Pope. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) He would have stayed prayed up for sure. Stayed prayed up, been with the Pope. Yeah. He wouldn't have. I would like to see the version of Napoleon where Mark Wahlberg plays him. Yeah. I would be sick. 
Um, <laughs> well, I got to uh, pick up my daughter from daycare. But do my we have daughter? An... Oh, my daughter in there. That's Mystic River. Do you? Uh, do we have any final thoughts on the Napoleon the Napoleon film? Uh, Vince, what'd you what'd you think of it? I enjoyed watching it. Um, I think uh, it could have been better. There was a lot of there was some meat left on that bone. Let's say. Okay, so solid B plus. Yeah. Uh, Everett, what'd you think uh, of it? Final thoughts. Uh, I mean, I think not not dissimilar from what Vince just said. I, you know, it was a fun experience. I, I've seen it twice now. I enjoyed it both times. Nice. Um, maybe some missed opportunities there, but um, all in all, pretty pretty good experience. I'd say uh, I'll give it a B. Okay, all right. And uh, me, if I had to give it a letter grade, um, I would say uh, it is an almost perfect movie because everything <laughs> in it happened. And um, the only points I will knock off is um, a little bit for Joaquin Phoenix um, because uh, he... He didn't do the Joker stare dance as Napoleon. Yeah. And uh, a little bit off from Ridley Scott for not having more scenes of Napoleon uh, fucking weird, which mm. I think is. <laughs> I did I'm, like that he fucked weird. That was. Yeah. That, and I think that's an important part of his personality. Yeah. The, you know, he was, you know, like this guy was like really good at army, but <laughs> he wasn't as good at women. And I wanted to see more of that, you know? Um, but solid B plus is all around. Great, great, great movie. Uh, Ridley Scott, make another one. Napoleon two, Napoleon three, do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Everett, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking about uh, Napoleon with us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Uh, Patreon.com slash broadcast for all of the bonus episodes. Uh, Frockcast at gmail.com for all your questions, comments, and concerns. Vince, what is a Google Voice number? 415-275-0030. All right, everyone. Thanks again so much for listening. And until next time, good night. And, or sorry, bon nuit. And <laughs> oh, bon chins. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know how to I say chins means. in French. Mm -hmm. All right, bye. Bye.